I want to show you a binder. It's a one-inch binder, and it's pretty full. Uh, it's a, inside is a, uh, a Bible study on the book of Job. The title of it is called Foundations of Endurance, The Compassion of God and the Endurance of Job. Now, uh, I've prepared this for you. Any of you that want one of these can get one. If you want to study the book of Job yourself, you can do that. And chapter by chapter, there's a lot of things in here. There's a, there's a CD of poetry of John Piper. Poetry he wrote, four poems he wrote on the book about the book of Job. There are all kinds of study guides. There are worksheets for each chapter that you can fill out. The answers are in the back. Okay? The answers are in the back. Okay? Now, our goal was, those of you, first goal, this may hit a lot of people, but our first goal in developing this was those of you who have junior high and high school kids. We're aiming this at parents of those who have junior high and high school kids. Why? We want you to, to have a tool that will allow you to take your junior high and high school kids through the ideas and concepts of what it means to walk by faith in the midst of suffering. What does that look like? What doesn't it look like? How can you do that? That's what this is. But like I've already said, if you just wanted to study it and you're an adult and you just want to study yourself, this will help you. If you're a homeschooler, and you're looking for a Bible curriculum for your junior high or high school or college, you can get this. Now, it's free. It's not going to cost you anything. Except it's going to cost you this. You're going to need to come to a... We're going to give it to you when you come to a training session on how to use it. Okay? Now, we're going to have one of those training sessions next Saturday morning. It's not the last one that we'll ever have. But next Saturday morning, from 9 to 11, two hours, if you want a copy of this and you want it now, by the way, in the back table, there's a couple of copies there and there'll be a third one if you want to just take a look at it. Okay? And uh, so we'd love to give you that. Now, here's what, all you have to do. If you're going to do this, you need to sign up next Saturday. If you sign up, I'll be here. It's going to be right here from 9 to 11. Okay? And if there's one of you, that's fine. If there's two, if there's three, if there's five, that'd be, that'd be fine. If you know somebody who needs this and you say to them, hey, would you like one of those? Sure, bring them. It's okay. But let me know. Okay, every one of these is about 120 pages. Okay? So we've got, I've got several made up, but I'll make up enough so that you can have a copy. I want you to have it. But this idea of the compassion of God and the endurance of Job is also the title of the sermon. So here's what I want you to do. If you're thinking about, well, maybe, maybe I'd like one of those. Maybe, as we go through here, you just say, God, you let me know what you want me to do. When I say the word Job, what comes to your mind? Job. What? Suffering. Somebody would say trials, you know, whatever. Yeah. Exactly. You know, the apostles, 
had a unique view about suffering. Very different view than ours, or than most people. Uh, Paul, writing to Timothy, said, Join me in suffering for the sake of the gospel, according to the power of God. And Timothy signed up for that. Can you believe it? He said, yeah, I'll do that. Peter, writing to the churches scattered across Asia, said, if you should suffer for the, case, for the sake of righteousness, you are... Anybody know? You, if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. You are blessed. How many people do you know say, oh, yeah, I'm suffering, but I'm blessed. But I'm blessed. Apostles had a unique view. This blessing from the apostolic point of view was a, was a blessing that changed everything. Paul, writing about this same thing in Romans, says this, we exalt, now writing to the church at Rome, we exalt in our tribulations. When we have tribulations, we say, praise God! Why? We, knowing that tribulation brings perseverance. Perseverance brings proven character. Proven character brings hope that doesn't disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts. See, what's he saying? Because when we see suffering and tribulation and trials, we know something. The love of God is going to shepherd us through that tribulation, through that trial, through that suffering, and bring about the results that he says will be brought about. You know, if you look, if you go to my office or Steve's office or any pastor's office, you're going to see a lot of commentaries, right? You'd expect to see a lot of commentaries. This is the best commentary on the Bible. The Bible is the best commentary on the Bible. Better than any man-written commentary there is. Do you agree? Yes. Yeah. Because this is the only inspired commentary. None of the others are. Here's what James said about Job and God's dealings with him in James 5, verse 11. He said this, and this is on your outline, I think. Yeah, it is, right at the top. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. There is a divinely inspired commentary on the relationship of Job and God in the midst of suffering. You know, there's two mistakes that the world makes when they look at people suffering. And sometimes we make those same mistakes. Here's the first one. The first mistake that some, people, that some people in the world make, and maybe we do, they see somebody suffering and they say, how could that happen? They don't deserve it. That's a mistake. To conclude that when somebody is suffering, they don't deserve it. It's not a judgment that you and I can make, is it? Who's the only one that can make that judgment about whether they deserve it or not? God, yeah. Another mistake they make is to look at the same thing and they say, it's about time. They do deserve it. You make either one of those judgments. They don't deserve it or they do deserve it. And you're, you're, just, you're just thinking down the wrong path. That's not the, the deal. 
God's aim, and I've, I've got it in, on your outline. You see the aim for the book of Job? Look at your outline there. It's on both the kids' outline and, and yours. To comfort God's people with His presence in the classroom of suffering in such a way that two things happen. God is glorified and they are refined into the image of God in a way that those around them can see it happen. Now, you're going to hear that about five times during the course of the next 40 minutes. What's the purpose and the aim of this book? Why is this here? So that we'll know that God is with us, that we'll see God with Job comforting him in the midst of the suffering so that two things will happen. God will be glorified and Job and us will be refined in a way that people around us can see it happen. So the outline is simple. By the way, I want to encourage those of you who, who think you're in for a five-hour sermon or something to preach. The, you know, I did preach this sermon at Kishwaukee Bible Church in about 45 minutes. So I, I think if I stick to the notes, I can do it again. Three points. The relationship between God and Job begins, verses chapters 1 and 2. The relationship is besieged or attacked, chapters 3 through 37. And the relationship blossoms, 38 to 42. Let's pray. Father, help us. Father, use your word this morning to change us. To change us so that we will embrace your invitation to suffer whenever you decide it's the thing that we need. To believe your promises that we'll be blessed in the midst of it. And to realize that that blessing is going to change everything for us. Our attitude towards suffering, it's going to refine us in the midst of suffering and it's going to bring you glory. So Father, this morning, use your relationship with Job to refine us and to bring glory to yourself. And all God's people said, now by, you realize by saying amen, you just said, do it. Do it. Now you didn't have to say that. He will anyway. Now, okay, to open your Bibles to the book of Job. To the book of Job. It's the only book we're going to be in this morning. I want you periodically to look at particular verses so that you'll be able to follow what's going on in this long book. Here's the question that that I hope gets answered this morning. Here's the question. What kind of relationship is there between Job and his God? When you walk out of this door, I hope you can say, this is the kind of relationship Job had with his God. God had with Job. Job 1.1. Let's begin there. Here's God's declaration about Job. 1.1. There was a man whose name was Job. This isn't a fairy tale. This, there was a guy. And that man was blameless. Kids, for your notes, upright fearing God and turning away from evil. Now, Job's response to that statement about God, that he was righteous and blameless and upright, uh, is reflected in the kind of relationship we see him having. Here's the thing. He did something really unique. He had ten children, and every time they had a birthday, some of them were adults, every time they had a birthday and they had a party, the next day, 
Job would go to, 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 to make an offering, a sin offering, just in case they had sinned in the, in the process of partying. Now we find that in verse 5. But what it does is it shows us that God had a, Job had an awareness of God. He had an awareness of sin. He had an awareness of the hearts of men, even his own sons and daughters. But right after verse 5, in verse 8, the scene changes. Now it's in the throne room of heaven. Can, can any of you imagine the throne room of heaven? The throne of God, God on it. Can you imagine it? And there's two people that we see there. We see God and we see Satan. In verse 8, God speaks to Satan. He said, Satan, in all your wanderings around the earth, Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And Satan, rather than saying, yes, God, I understand that, He says, now wait a minute. Wait a minute. There's a reason why he is like that. I challenge you, God. I challenge you. Verse 11. Put forth your hand now. Touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. You see, Satan was willing to bet. He was willing to bet that if God would take away the things he had given to Job, Job would say, I've had enough of you, God. I'm out of here. Now, Job's response. Now, that happens. That happens. Kids, in your notes, you see a scene in heaven and you see messengers coming to Job and they're telling him, your kids were killed. This, you you lost all you have. And after that, in verse 20... Through 22 of chapter 1, this is how Job responds to that. Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell to the ground and worshipped, and he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return. The Lord gave, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. See, there was an awareness of this relationship on Job's part. Now, there was a second meeting in heaven. Right after this, it's it's accounted, we see it in in chapter 2. Satan and God are back together again. God says to Satan, there's no one like this guy on earth. Now you've seen it. He's blameless and he's upright and he's fearing God and he turns away from evil. And still, he holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. That's a key phrase. To ruin him without cause. To take his children, to take his, take his things, and he didn't deserve it. God said that. God's the one who can say that. I didn't do that to him because he was a sinner and he deserved it. That's not why I did it. I had other reasons for doing that. What are those reasons? What's the purpose of of this book? To show that God is with His people in the midst of suffering so that God will be glorified and that those people will be changed into the image of God in a way that those around them can see. That's the reason why that took place. Now Satan challenges them again. Chapter 2, verse 5. Okay, but we didn't do enough. You didn't do enough. 
put forth thy hand now, verse 5, touch his bones and his flesh and he will curse you to your face. And so, Job's body, every part of his body, becomes covered with boils. And those boils are so painful and itchy. You ever had something that, you, that itched so much you couldn't avoid scratching it? You ever had anything like that? Yeah. Okay. So the, the, only, the only relief he found was to take a piece of clay, pottery, and, and, and break those boils. And so what was his... He was a mess. And the ones he couldn't reach, he had his wife. Get that, he said, get me here. Everywhere, where he sit, where he'd lay, there was no place for comfort. And eventually his wife says, Job, this is awful. This is, this is, you can't take this anymore. And I can't take doing this to you. Curse God and die. That's the only place you're going to find relief. How does Job respond to that when his wife says that to him? Look at verse 10 of chapter 2. And we see this relationship between Job and God lifted up again. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. You know what? I'm impressed, aren't you? I'm impressed. What kind of a relationship is this? Well, it's one in which God purposes to let Job know that he's with him in order to comfort him in such a way that God will be glorified and Job will be refined and changed more into the image of God and so that he will love God more than he loves any earthly pleasure or any earthly treasure. It's also his, his purpose is also to partner with Job, not to just leave him alone, but to partner with him so that Job will love him more and love him more than any earthly treasure or pleasure. Some of you may have read the, the story or heard even Johnny Erickson Tata. When she was a teenager, she took a dive on a, uh, into a pond thinking it was, she could just do that, and her head hit a rock, she became an instant quadriplegic. Uh, she couldn't walk, she could, you know, instant quad. She was a believer, she was a Christian. And in her life story, she tells that she had a life verse that became her verse the day, as soon as she could think, after she, after she was in the hospital from this event. And it came from one of the Psalms. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. That was her life. That became her life first. Well, what was the desire of her heart? Heal me. Fix this. For six years. For six years, that was her prayer to God. Heal me. Fix this. Six years later, now she's in her early 20s. She's been praying, God, heal me, fix this. Get me back to where I was. She was having a Bible study with, her, with a friend in the book of Romans. 
And together they came to understand. They heard the words where, where the, they were looking at the cross and they heard the scripture say, God planned everything that happened at Calvary. Jesus' death, Jesus' suffering, Everything that happened to Jesus was God's plan. Not, it didn't happen because men planned to do it. Now, they did plan to do it. But it was God's plan. And together, they came up with this idea. God allows things He hates to accomplish things He loves. God allows things He hates to happen in, in order to accomplish things He loves. Now, you might say, and I would expect you to say this, is that right? Is that right? Well, let me just ask. Just the highest and greatest example. The cross. The cross. His son was unjustly tortured. His son was put on trial, falsely accused. Every conceivable sin was poured out on his son. So that all the things that we could go and find scripture and says, God hates that, God hates that, God hates that, God hates that, yet he used those things to accomplish what? The salvation of his people through the death of his son. John Piper says this in speaking about Job and Satan. Satan cannot make a move without the permission of Almighty God. He may be a lion. You remember in Peter, it says, Peter says he's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He may be a lion. And God, but, God, but he's a lion on a leash. <laughs> he may be a lion, but he's a lion on a leash. God reigns him in or gives him slack according to His own sovereign purposes for His glory and for our good. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Yes. Yes. Lord, help our unbelief. Second point. First point, the relationship begins. Second point, the relationship is besieged. It's a word for attack. You know, it's one thing it's one thing to have an ex, uh, to experience a sudden tragedy, the loss of a child or the discovery of some dreaded disease in your body. But it's quite another thing to experience the relentless misery of the loss of that loss for months or even years. What happens? What happens? Maybe this has happened to some of you. What happens when a person hears the doctor say, there's nothing more we can do for you? You're just going to have to live with this for the rest of your life. What happens? When a person realizes the suffering, the pain I have is not going to go away. It's not going to go away for a long time. The rest of my life. That's what Job fears. Look at chapter 7, verse 2. Chapter 7, verse 2. Job says, in verses 2 and 3, As a slave pants for the shade... As a hired man who eagerly waits for wages, so I am allotted months of vanity. Nights of trouble are appointed me. See, he's, this, this, this stuff all over his body is not going away. 
every time they scrape one, a day or so later, there's another one in its place. This, this torture, this, these boils all over his body, there's no indication in Job that they go away until the last four chapters when God reveals Himself face to face to Job. He has, as some theologians think, that this was six or seven years. Job had that situation. Six or seven years. Why? Why all this misery? Why for so long? Why not cut right to chapter 42? Why not have God come and reveal Himself to him and His purposes and get the change done right then? What does the author of Job want Job to learn from these interactions with his friends? Chapters 30, chapter 3 through 37. 75% of the book of Job is these conversations between Job and his friends who speak wrong about God to him. Three quarters of the book of Job is made up of recorded conversations, word for word, of what his friends said to him about why they thought this was happening to him and Job's response back to him. Why? Why all this? Well, dear ones, it's for us. It's for us. And here it is again. It's so that God's people, including Job, will know that God is with him to comfort him in a way that God will be glorified and that he'll be changed in a way that others can see. Now, let me give you a... Beginning, uh, beginning with chapter 3, verse 2. Let me give you just real quickly here a, a, a taste of chapters 3 to 37. We're only going to do a little bit. I'm going I'm to I'm let you hear each friend speak to Job and Job speak back to him. And that's all we're going to do. Okay? But there's a lot here. Look at chapter 3, verse 2. Job, here's the here's situation. Job's body, although he lost his kids, he lost his belongings, he lost his riches, he developed these boils, and his friends, three friends, actually we're going to find out there were four, came from wherever they were and they sat in where they sat with Job. For seven days they said nothing. They just sat there. Maybe they were praying. Maybe they were just letting him know that they were there to be with him. For seven days, the friends said nothing. Seven days of silence. Job's not talking. They're not talking. In chapter 3, we hear Job speak, breaking the silence. Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. Let the day perish on which I was born and the night which said, a boy is conceived. What is Job saying? This hurts so much, I wish I had never been born. Eliphaz, one of his friends, in chapter 4, verse 8, responds to what Job has said. Chapter 4, verse 8, According to what I have seen, Eliphaz says, those who plow iniquity, those who sow trouble, harvest it. What's he saying? You reap what you sow. That's what I think. You're just getting what you deserve. 
dear ones, this idea runs deep in us. It runs deep. It's right there. When we see someone else suffering, we may not say it, but we think it. They must have done something to deserve this. Job reacts. Chapter 6, verse 10, the second part of the verse. He says to Eliphaz in response, I rejoice that I have not denied the words of the Holy One. What is he saying? You're wrong, Eliphaz. That's not true. Look at 7, chapter 7, verse 20, the first part of the verse. Now he's talking to God. Have I sinned? He says to Eliphaz, I haven't done, I haven't sinned. But to God he says, Have I sinned? What have I done to thee, O watcher of men? So his assertions are to men. I haven't sinned. Have I? I haven't sinned. Have I? You ever done that? Second friend, Bildad, now speaks up. Chapter 8, verse 3. Does God pervert justice? He's been sitting there for a long time. He's been thinking, what's the question I need to ask? Does God pervert justice? If your sons sinned against Him, then He delivered them to the power of their transgression. What's He saying? Your sons sinned. That's why God took their life. That's why that happened. Chapter 8, verse 6. Now He speaks about Job. And if you, Job, are pure and upright, surely now... He, God, would arouse Himself for you. If you were pure, if you were who you say you are, God would give everything back to you. That's what He's saying. Now Job Job reacts to the words of his first two friends. Some people say with friends like this, who needs... Yeah, anyway. Job reacts. Chapter 9, verse 33. I don't know if you've ever felt this way, but let this sink in. Chapter 9, verse 33. There is... He's speaking to God again. There is no umpire between us who may lay His hand upon us both. Let not dread of Him terrify me. I need a mediator. I need someone between me and God. I can't go up against God directly. I need someone between me and Him. I need an umpire who can put his hand on God and put his hand on me and say, now come, let's be reasonable, boys. A question. Is there going to be a mediator? Is a mediator coming? Yes. Jesus Christ the righteous. Chapter 10, verse 12. Thou hast granted me life and loving kindness and thy care has preserved my spirit. It's as if he's saying, I don't want to be afraid of you, God. You're the one, you're the one who's given me life. You're the one who's given me loving kindness. You're the one who preserves me. I don't want to be afraid of you. I need a mediator. I need an umpire. Third friend, Zophar is his name. Chapter 11, verse 13. Here's what he's saying. You've heard this before. 
if you, Job, would direct your heart right, you would be steadfast and you would not be afraid. If you were right, you'd be fine. Job responds in chapter 13, verse 15. Though he slay me, though God slay me, yet I will hope in him. Nevertheless, I will argue my ways before him. Interesting. Even if he takes my life, I still am going to trust him. But I want to talk to him. I want to talk to him. I want to lay my case in front of him. I want to ask him my questions. You ever felt like that? (laughs) Chapter 14, verse 13. Oh, that thou wouldst conceal me until thy wrath returns to thee. Oh, that you, oh God, that you would protect me until your wrath does its full thing, whatever it's doing, and until your wrath comes back to you. Protect me. I can't go up against that. See what he's saying. My heart is a heart of trust in him. See, the relationship is being attacked, and it's coming through the ideas and the words of these friends. The friends are talking. Job is talking. Who's the only one that's not talking? God is not talking. That leaves the rest of them walking by faith in what they believe to be true about God. And there's two more rounds of these questions that go around between Job's three friends and him. And they're virtually the same. They are slightly different, but they're virtually the same. Job's responses each time is a mix. It's a mix of faith and sin. So when God said at the beginning, He is righteous, He is blameless, what He's not saying is He's sinless. That's not what God means when He says He's righteous and blameless. doesn't mean sinless. Now, Let's just stop here. Theological pause. If you're saved, are you righteous from God's point of view? Shake your head if you think so. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. God would say the same thing about you. You're righteous and you're blameless. Why? Because you're closed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that will never change. Are you sinless? No. We have, Job and us. His responses are a mix of faith and sin. Turn to chapter 19. I want to give you one example of this. Chapter 19, verse 7. Hurry, hurry, hurry. Chapter 19, verse 7. Job says, Behold, I cry, Violence! But I get no answer. I shout for help, but there is no justice. Verse 23. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Have they been inscribed in a book? Yeah. What is he saying? I'm crying out. Nobody's hearing me. I wish somebody would make a record of this. Now, in the same chapter, just let your eyes go down to verse 25. Same chapter. Now listen to his faith. 
And as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, He will take His stand on earth even after my skin is destroyed. Now that's an interesting phrase in light of what is all over His body. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold and whom my eyes shall see and not another. Even though I cry out to Him and I'm not getting an answer, yet I believe and in the end, I believe this, I'm going to see Him with my own eyes. See, dear ones, this is a true story. This is good news. It's a true story with a happy ending. But there is something here. This mix of, of faith and sin is common to us. It's common to us, too. We walk by faith. Yet we sin. When we sin, if we are men and women and children of faith, what do we do? We run to the place where we can confess our sins. And He can forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Third point, last point. The, blo- the relationship blossoms. Now we're, in, we're going to be in chapter 38 to the end, just the last part. Months, maybe even years have passed by by the time we get here. But the thing that's always been there, there have been three things that have always been there. Memories of the loss of His children. Can you lose ten children? Can you have ten children die and forget it? Ever? The loss of His ten children was a memory. The loss of all His riches was a memory. A daily companion. The physical pain, the boils, and their discomfort is a constant companion. Six, maybe seven years. He's got one other companion. He's got the wrong thinking of his friends who are there every day telling him how he's wrong and what he needs to do. And their wrong thinking about God is another constant companion. And as the suffering continues, Job's complaints grow in their frequency and in their intensity. Look at Job 23. Job 23, verse 3. Job cries out, Oh, that I knew where I might find Him, that I might come to His seat. Who's He talking about? Who's He talking about? God, yes. I would present my case before Him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would say, God, why are you doing this to me? You ever done that? God, why is this happening? Job's last friend, a young friend, Elihu by name, has been silent through all of this time. And now he speaks up, the Scriptures say, out of frustration with these other three friends who don't seem to be able to get through to Job. And as this Elihu speaks for six chapters... And it's a mix. He says some of the same things that the friends say, but he says some of the right things, too, about God. And at the end of these six chapters, a thunderstorm comes up. But it's no ordinary thunderstorm. This is a big thunderstorm. And it is the the presence of God Himself. God has arrived in in the... 
dressed in a storm. How do you see God? Well, God made Himself visible to Job and He came in a storm. God has arrived and He's come to talk to Job. Look at chapter 38, verse 3. Chapter 38, verse 3. Now, God says, Gird up your loins like a man. Be a man, Job. Only here's the deal. I'm going to ask you questions and you're going to instruct me. Well, that's not what Job was asking for. He said, I want to ask you questions. You tell me. Now, here's the deal. Get ready. I'm going to ask you questions. You're going to teach me. And God begins to ask Job questions. In verse 4 of 38, Where where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth, Job? So he's asking him questions about things he doesn't know, can't see. Verse 19, chapter 38. Here's here's another question of, of part of the world he can see. Where is the way to the dwelling of the light? And the darkness, where is it placed? When the sun goes away and when the moon goes away, where do they go? Tell me if you know, Job. Chapter 39, verse 10 and 12. About animals. Job, can you bind the wild ox in a a furrow? Can you put ropes on it so that you can trust this ox to do your work for you? And can you walk away and leave him? And just know that he'll do all your work for you? Can you do that? Well, you can't even do that with a tractor that I know of. Maybe they've got a computer program now. I don't know. But certainly he couldn't have done that then. And then in chapters 38 to 41, and I counted these several times, God proceeds to ask Job 68 questions. 68 questions. These questions are designed, they have a purpose. Their purpose is to bring Job to the end of himself. Some of the things that show up in this, if God God is saying, if only I can set the wild donkey free, who are you going to trust to set you free, Job? If only I can protect the eggs of the ostrich from being destroyed, who will you trust to protect you? If only I can cause a horse in the midst of battle to not run in fear. Who will you trust, Job, when the battle rages around you? If only I can give the hawk eyes to see its prey from hundreds of feet up. Who are you going to trust to enable you to see what you need? 68 questions. That must have felt like 168. But now Job is listening. Job has, Job has lost his desire to talk. Now he's listening. Dear ones, I think in the midst of suffering and trials and temptations, the same thing happens to us. There's a time when we want to do the talking and we want to confront God. And then there's a time when we say, God, I just want to listen to what you say. I just want to listen. And that's where Job is. And as these questions are coming to an end, the reason for this question and answer session is becoming clear. Look at chapter 40, verse 2. God asked Job this question. Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? 
Let him who reproves God answer. Who's the fault finder? Job. God said, will you, the fault finder of me, contend with me? Job's response is in verse 4. And it reflects a relationship with God. 44. 40 verse 4. Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to thee? I lay my hand in my mouth. I'm going to stop talking and listen. God's questions continue because His purpose isn't just to shut Job up. Parents will identify with that. You ever deal with your kids in a way that you just want to shut them up? Yeah, sometimes. That's not what God is doing. He doesn't just want Job to shut up and go away. He wants to instruct him. So God asks the question in, chapter, in verse 8 of chapter 40. And it's, it's going to start a series of these will you, can you type questions Chapter, uh, chapter 40, verse 8. Will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me so that you can be thought to be justified? What's God saying to Job here? Did you hear what he said? Are you, are you going to say things about me just so other people will think that you're the one that's justified and I'm the one in the wrong? Well, yeah, that's what's happening. Verse 9. Job, do you have an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like His? Will you? Can you? See, the purpose is so that Job will see God more clearly than he's ever seen Him before. And now here's a series of these. They're not... They're not in the form of questions, but they are. It's this will you, can you, what can you do? Look in verse 10. Will you, can you adorn yourself with eminence and dignity and clothe yourself with honor and majesty? Now remember, what does Job look like right now? Does he look like a man of dignity and eminence with boils all over his body, pus and blood and whatever? Job, can you make yourself look like a king? Well, Job knows the answer to that. There's only one who can do that. Verse 11. Will you, can you pour out the overflowing of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and make him low? Do you see what he's saying? Can you take your anger, Job, and turn somebody who's sinful into a humble, repentant person? Can you do that? Well, has he been able to do it from chapter 3 to chapter 37 with his friends? No. Chapter chapter 40, verse 12. Will you, can you look on everyone who is proud and humble him? Can you tread the wicked down where they stand? Job, can you humble the proud? Now, this is important. That's the first time we've heard what the the main sin that God is revealing to Job is, and it's going to turn out to be, is pride. 
Verse 13. Will you, can you hide them in the dust? Can you bind them in the hidden place? Job, can you give the wicked what I alone can give them? Can you bring them to a point that they'll repent? Or can you, if they won't repent, can you consign them to hell? That's what he's asking there. Look at it again. Can you, will you hide them in the dust? That's humbling them. Can you bind them in the hidden place? Can you put them in the jail of hell for their refusal to... to... Oh no. Job, verse 14. Look at this. Verse 14. Job, if you can do these things, then I will agree with you. Here's what Job is really thinking. I can justify myself. I can save myself. Then I will agree with you that your own right hand can save you. See, this is the issue that has arisen as Job's suffering has gone on and on and on. It's pride. Now, it wasn't always that way. But during the course of these six years, maybe seven, his hands that were first rising to God and cries for help have now started to do this. Watch. Get down here. Answer my questions. I want to know. And get down here right now. His cries for help have become sinful pride. You know, dear ones, if you suffer for a long time yourself, or if you see others doing that, the longer it goes on, the more difficult it gets in this particular way. Because if you don't get what you think God ought to give you in the time you ought to get it, then you begin to say, huh, not listening, huh? Well, let me accuse you then. There's one last animal that God brings before Job in chapter 41, verse 33. It's, a, it's an animal that probably does not exist called Leviathan. Kids, there's a picture there in your notes. I have no idea. I have no idea. But somebody thought that that's what Leviathan might look like. But here's what God says about Leviathan in verse 33. Nothing on earth is like him. It's God's own sea monster. One made without fear. He fears nothing or no one. He looks on everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. The New, the New Living Translation says, of all the creatures, it is the proudest. It is the king of the beast. Who do we say is the king of the beast? The lion, yeah. Uh, no, God's king of the beast was Leviathan. And really, the king of the beast, he's pointing to Job and he says, it's the pride in your own heart. It's the pride in your own heart, which has surfaced in the midst of long, extended suffering. Now, remember the aim and the purpose of this book? Remember, look back to the top of your page. The aim is to, for God to comfort His people with His presence in the classroom of suffering in such a way that he will be glorified and they will be refined into his image in a manner that those around them can see. 
God has been saying to Job, I use my power to clothe myself in splendor. What had Job been asking? Clothe me in splendor. Get down here and clothe me in splendor. God says, no, I only clothe myself in splendor. That's what I do. I use my power to clothe myself in splendor, to humble the proud and to lift up the humble. That's what's going on here, Job. Why so much suffering for so long? To refine Job. Yes, God has declared him righteous. He is a child of God. That doesn't mean he's sinless. He needs refining. He's got to surface the hidden sins, in this case pride, so that God will be glorified in a way that everybody can see. That's what's going on. Well, how Job, how, let's just wrap this up. How's Job going to respond? Look at 42 2. Verse 2 of chapter 42. I've got three minutes. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And as Job says that, he is embracing the sovereignty of God. I know that you can do whatever you want to do and that your purposes can't be thwarted. Chapter, uh, chapter 42, verse 3, the second part of the verse. I have declared that which I did not understand. And he embraces the wisdom of God. He says, I didn't understand, now I do. Verse 6, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. And he repents, he embraces the mercy of God for sinners. Isn't this a wonderful relationship? Isn't this a wonderful relationship? Let me just quickly summarize. Job's endurance began with God's declaration of of, of a relationship. He is mine. He is righteous. And ours, dear ones, has become, begun in exactly the same way. Job's endurance was besieged, but it was preserved through a relationship with God by faith. Remember what, remember what Job said in chapter 19? I know my Redeemer lives and at the last I will see Him with my own eyes. Do you know, in the, and this would be in the booklet if you get it, there's a chart that shows how Job responds to every one of the friends as they spoke wrong about God. And every time, there's faith in there. Every time. Never a time where there wasn't. And we are preserved, dear ones, in the same way. Job's endurance blossomed in a relationship of merciful instruction by God. And ours blossoms in exactly the same way. Now, dear ones, you want to think about this book a little more? You want to think about it a little more in depth? This will help you. Take a look. And if you want to do it, and if you want to get this and get some training on how to use it, next Saturday morning at 9 till 11. I'm going to read a poem. It's in your bulletin. It's in your notes. It's not in the kids' notes. The poem is entitled, A Mendicant. The word mendicant means a beggar. A beggar. Now listen and read along. You don't read out loud, just listen. I stood a beggar of God, a mendicant of God, before his royal throne and begged him for one priceless gift which I could call my own. I took the gift from out of his hand, but as I would depart, I cried, But Lord, this is a thorn, and it has pierced my heart. 
This is a strange and hurtful gift which you have given me. He said, My child, I give good gifts. I gave the best to thee. So I took it home. And though at first the cruel thorn hurt sore, as long years passed, I learned at last to love it more and more. I learned He never gives a thorn without this added grace. He takes the thorn to pin aside the veil that hides His face. One of the elders of Kishwaukee Bible Church is an eight-year-old daughter that had cancer. She just finished her last treatments and they think it's in remission. Her dad said, there's a part of me that's sorry to see this go. We have learned more about the character and love and comfort of our God in the midst of this trial. I'm sorry to see it go. This has been good for us. Now I know that in your trials, as you have trusted God, you know the same. 